is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Chris Gunty of the Catholic Review. Today on Catholic Review Radio, we will be talking about the Bard of Avon, William Shakespeare, whose birthday is uncertain, but presumed to be in late April 1564 because he was baptized April 26th of that year. The famous playwright and poet died at age 52, April 23rd, 1616. We're talking with two local Catholic University professors about Catholic themes in Shakespeare's plays. John Lewis is Associate Professor of English at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg. He has taught works by Shakespeare in English and core humanities courses every year at Mount St. Mary's University since 2014. Before that, he was Assistant Professor of Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College, where he also taught Shakespeare. His doctoral dissertation focused on the reception of the works of Geoffrey Chaucer in the long 16th century. Robert Miola is the Gerard Manley Hopkins Professor of English and a lecturer in classics at Loyola University, Maryland, and has written on Shakespeare and Johnson, early modern Catholicism, including an anthology of primary sources, and early modern receptions of Greek and Latin works. Welcome to the show, professors. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I majored in English in college, uh, so not quite the extensive work that you, you folks have done, uh, but two of my favorite professors were in that field. The first was Sister Philippa Coogan, one of the foremost Chaucer scholars in the country. And as students, we assumed that was because she was so old that he she had actually <laughs> traveled to Canterbury with Chaucer. Uh, perhaps not, but she was in her 70s when she made us memorize the first 16 lines of the Canterbury Tales and gave us young freshmen our first heavy dose of that book. The other was Dr. Catherine Jarrett, who taught Shakespeare and encouraged the students to jot down places in London that we should visit if we ever got there. I haven't yet, but I think I still have that list tucked into the cover of the Riverside Shakespeare that we toted to class three times a week. Lovely, lovely. In the preface to the first folio, one of the first definitive texts of Shakespeare's works, Ben Johnson hailed the bard as not of an age, but for all time. So let's start with you, Bob. Why have Shakespeare's works stayed with us for more than four centuries? They just work so beautifully in the theater, and they work so beautifully um, on the page, stage and page. What's fun to um, listen to is the Shakespeare Wars, where um, someone will get all excited because Shakespeare's not required. It's the downfall of Western civilization. I always say Shakespeare does just fine in the open market. Uh, it doesn't matter to me if you require him or not. People go to the plays. Students sign up to read Shakespeare. And, uh, and, and, and so uh, the, the look at humanity, the unforgettable characters, the beautiful language. That's what I would say, yeah. John, how about you? Yes, no, I'd have to echo and agree with what Bob just said there. Um, and particularly in terms of interrogating universal questions and problems of humanity. Right. Um, so both the universal, but also the particularly modern. Right. Um, Shakespeare's writing at the advent of the modern age. And at least in my understanding of 
Catholic themes or Catholic ideas in his works, which we'll get to, I know, in just a bit, I see him raising religious or spiritual themes and questions in a way that I think really resonates with the modern reader, the modern listener, um, as well as just more general reflections on human nature. Also, I'll, I'll throw this out here. Um, in Aristotle's Poetics, he, he notes that epic poets are better than dramatists because no dramatist has succeeded in tragedy and comedy equally well. So I think that William Shakespeare sort of gives Aristotle a run for his money on that in writing amazing tragedies, amazing comedies, and uh, really existing and living in multiple genres, multiple ways of imagining reality. Yeah, when I was in college, our college theater company did a couple of plays a year, and uh, over the course of the four years I was there, at least four of them were Shakespeare plays. Uh, so there, there was that. I also obviously read the, the texts, but also listened to them on audio cassette. Oh. So that whole thing of kind of trying to get into a lot of, you know, hearing the words in different ways, seeing them played out, I think it really made a difference. Sean, how does reading the classics, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Johnson, others, how does that help students get an understanding of the world and broaden their horizons? Hmm. So I was just talking about this today, just... A few minutes before this conversation in one of my humanities courses here at Mount St. Mary's University, the way in which great texts continue to speak to us across time, right? Um, I often talk about in my classes the way in which texts can and should be understood as products of their own time, so-called synchronous reading of text. So what does Shakespeare tell us about Elizabethan England? That's a, a totally legitimate and important way of understanding literary texts. But equally important is a diachronic reading, considering how texts are read throughout time. And I love it when students make comments like, wow, Chaucer's so modern, right? Uh, or Because he is, right? Um, one of my favorite comments that stuck with me from my days of teaching as a doctoral student was a student who said that, wow, Homer really gets modern issues. Like, yes, Homer, right, the, the, one of the earliest Western poets does get modern issues, right? So if we consider humanity as something that doesn't change much over time, you know, really great minds across genres, right, be they literary texts, philosophical texts, religious texts, presumably will still speak to contemporary concerns and questions, right? And something that stresses for students, I think, is that some of these questions of what it means to be human are not just old questions, but eternal questions. And making that distinction, the old versus the eternal, uh, is something that I think that great classic texts can bring out. And I would say the meaning shifts and changes um, mm, yes. as, as, you, as you move through the texts and, it, and these plays and, and, and authors speak differently. And even in one's own lifetime, one finds that we read the plays of Shakespeare and we read the tales of Chaucer, but they also read us in a curious way. <laughs> you know, depending on where you are in your life, King Lear is going to be a different play for you. Uh, the Miller's Tale is going to be a different work. Uh, it, it, it's it's not so much for me about the universal um, truth that is delivered, but the way that the work um, resides in us and begins to um, interrogate us and also to deliver uh, comfort and challenge. So, uh, yeah, those that have stood the test of time, Homer, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, um, 
we like to make these available to our students and we like our students to experience them because they then can lead richer lives, I think. Yeah. And if I could just add a response to that, um, which is beautifully put, I think that the way in which texts read us, um, yeah, the, the notion that some of these more timeless human questions are always, of course, encountered in a specific time and culture and person and place, right? And it's striking that uh, you know, Shakespeare didn't have the term anti-Semitism. But clearly, a play like The Merchant of Venice is interrogating that idea. Um, it doesn't have a concept of racism the way that we do. But Othello, it's hard to get away from questions and problems of race there. So I think another way of thinking about a classic text is one that also anticipates or is open to new readings by new populations that illuminate that text and illuminate those populations in ways that the author himself couldn't have even imagined. That's a good way to look at it. Let's look at the Catholic characters and themes in Shakespeare's plays. Why are there a lot and what kind of research has been done in that arena, Bob? Well, of course, England was, well, everybody in England was Catholic till 1535, <laughs> uh, or, at least, or at least professed Catholicism, or most of the people professed Catholicism. There were, of course, Jews, Muslims, atheists, and so on in England. But the point is that um, England became a a Protestant nation by legislative fiat from the top down in Henry's reign with the Act of Supremacy and the other acts suppressing monasteries and so on. And then uh, Catholicism became the outlawed religion. But that was only, um, you know, a few generations before Shakespeare was writing. So all of those traditions and all of that history was alive and active in uh in the late 16th century, early 17th century. It used to be the scholarly consensus that Protestantism, that England woke up in the new Protestant morning uh, and that those moribund, traditional, ritualistic Catholics were, were done and had their day. But the most vital scholarship in the last 30 years has indicated that Catholicism was alive and well in England uh, even if under duress. And um, Johns Hopkins just did a conference a few years ago on Mary under duress, the Virgin Mary under duress, uh, which, which uh, also highlighted this. So the history of England and the history of Catholicism were, were deeply intertwined. And Shakespeare, uh, we can talk about this, Shakespeare was acutely aware of the theatrical, theological, dramatic, and human possibilities of the Catholic heritage. Yeah, and um, if I could build on that too, because uh, every so now and then I'll get students who ask the question, so was Shakespeare Catholic, right? And um, I'm always curious to know what's behind that question. Often it's just a sense of like team loyalty, right? Like, well, I'm Catholic, so is Shakespeare Catholic, right? Uh, they, they, they kind of, or in its most crass way, like, okay, I can read, Shakespeare's a good thing to read because he was Catholic. And um, I respond to that, that in order to deal with the full complexity of religious identity during Shakespeare's time, uh, a great term to use from the period um, this is, um, I'm getting from the scholar Peter Lake, who's written on religious identity in Shakespeare's England. Um, Lake notes that an interesting term in Elizabethan England is, quote unquote, church papist. So church papist. And a church papist is, so, so 
who is outside of the Church of England? On the one hand, you have recusant Catholics, right? Folks who refuse to commune in the Church of England, who are clearly adherents to the old religion, um, even if that means fines, imprisonment, or even martyrdom, right? Um, so those clearly are Roman Catholic by our understanding. You also have the Puritans, right? Folks who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, thinking the Church of England needs to be more like Geneva, who don't commune in the Church of England because it doesn't go far enough in the Protestant project. And so this term church papist it refers to different people, whether the term is used by recusants or Puritans. For recusants, church papist is someone who is externally a member of the Church of England, but who has deep, what would say, Catholic sympathies, right? That the, the, mm -hmm. the practices, the imagination of the old religion still runs deep in them, and they might be attached to things like devotion to saints, the liturgy, things that still exist in the Church of England, though, in a kind of muted form. And so for recusants, church papists are those who could be fertile ground for conversion to full recusancy, right? Yeah. On the Puritan side, church papists refer to those who may be theologically Protestant, but who are unfortunately still tied to some of the you know, papish, popish nonsense that is still in the Church of England. So this term church papist can cover quite a broad and heterogeneous company. And so what I always tell my students to put an end to this is that I am convinced that Shakespeare was a church papist, right? Now, he's never fined for recusancy from, from what we, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Bob, if new scholarship come out, but from what we know, Shakespeare is never persecuted as a recusant. William Byrd, great composer, um, a contemporary of Shakespeare, was an open recusant, right? There, there are examples of people who are openly recusant in the age, and Shakespeare just isn't one of them. But it's clear, I think, if you read the plays, that the Catholic imagination, the Catholic tradition, has held quite a, a hold on him. So what kind of church papist is he? That we can maybe talk about. But yeah, clearly he's somebody for whom the old religion and the old practices are resonant. And someone like Emrys Jones, uh, one of C.S. Lewis's students at Oxford, in his Origins of Shakespeare, makes a really solid case for Shakespeare watching medieval mystery plays as a child, because they aren't outlawed by Elizabeth until, I think, what, 1579 in Warwickshire? So like the, the notion that, that sh little Shakespeare is growing up in a largely medieval Catholic world, and though he's not a recusant as an adult, that's a world that still informs his plays. Well, that is a good place for us to take a break. And after the break, we will talk more with Professors Sean Lewis and Robert Miola about Shakespeare. This is Chris Gunty, and you're listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic news from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. When the world shut down last year because of the pandemic, the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg decided it was time to reach outward. Supported by dedicated staff members and seminarians from nearby Mount St. Mary Seminary, the Shrine created a prayer hotline last April that has proven so successful it plans to continue well after COVID-19 has receded. To date, more than 2,000 calls have been logged, and many of them have turned into relationships that have changed the lives of people on both ends of the line. The hotline is available between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. The Shrine also has a prayer request page on its website, seatandshrine.org. That address again is seatandshrine.org. Celebrating his name day, the Feast of St. George, Pope Francis was serenaded by hundreds of Rome's most vulnerable residents and the people who assist them. 
The Pope, who was born Jorge Mario Bergoglio, celebrated his birth saint's feast April 23rd by visiting people who came to the Vatican for the second dose of their COVID-19 vaccinations. Close to 600 people were scheduled to receive the inoculations throughout the day. Those present sang their best wishes to the Pope for his name day. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. From the virtual newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm George Matisek. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. We're back on Catholic Review Radio, talking with Sean Lewis of Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg and Robert Miola of Loyola University, Maryland, about Catholic themes in Shakespeare. Before the break, you talked about the fact that Shakespeare might have considered, been considered a church papist. Does it matter if he was Roman Catholic or not, and why would it matter? Yeah, I, I'll just jump in here and say, um, just for the viewers, a church papist is somebody who, who attends the Church of England because it's required, but has some uh, degree of Catholicity still remaining, if not a um, biographical or religious allegiance, uh, at least what I would call cultural Catholicity. This is one broad way to put it. And this gets us to Sean's point about the theatrical heritage that um, Shakespeare is using. I like to say to the students, Dante was a Catholic, Milton was a Protestant, Shakespeare was a playwright. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we don't need to claim Shakespeare for our side. We have Dante. Okay. So, And Shakespeare stands up pretty well just as a playwright. <laughs> without having to put him in, in any cubbyhole. <laughs> Not chased after the, Absolutely. the you know, one for our side business that Sean was mentioning. And let's stay where, uh, where he pointed us, which is to say in the theatrical medieval traditions, the mystery traditions, the plays. One point I like to make just very briefly is what about the hotter versions of Calvinism rejecting the idea of free will? What does that do to a tragedy like Macbeth? Macbeth's been read that way. But I think it's clear that Shakespeare endorses free will and then wants to show what happens when you make the wrong choice. I read it as a play in damnation that is um, arising out of a theology of free will. So, so I think yeah, Catholicism really matters dramatically, not biographically to Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Mm. And aside from Catholic characters and themes within the plays, uh, what other kinds of values are most prevalent in Shakespeare's plays? Sean? Hmm. What values most present? I mean, that's a, a tricky answer because I, I think that if I'm perceiving Bob correctly, and I hope I am, I agree in terms of Shakespeare as a playwright. He, he's His plays raise questions, problems. They interrogate the world yeah. more than giving like canned theses like like this is my set of values like or 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 if, if they're about values they're about playing with values so for instance um where religious identities could come into play in a shakespearean tragedy is hamlet right one of the central concerns around hamlet is the status of this ghost right the ghost says essentially that he's in purgatory in act one scene five Hamlet, as we know, is a student at the University of Wittenberg, which was Martin Luther's university. So getting to the dramatic use here, part of the doubt that 
that Hamlet might be feeling is he's going to a Lutheran university. He's seeing a ghost who says he's in purgatory. What's he to do about that? The reading of that play differs dramatically whether you think purgatory is real or not, just as your reading Macbeth differs greatly whether or not you believe in free will. In terms of broader values, a former professor of mine to whom I owe a lot in terms of Shakespearean reading, Dr. Scott Kreider from the University of Dallas, um, in his book, With What Persuasion, 2009, uh, he, he does this rhetorical, theological investigation of themes, particularly in later Shakespearean plays. And and his read is that part of what's interesting about Shakespeare is taking what might be considered more specifically religious or spiritual values but then translating them to a broader human horizon, making them accessible, so to speak, outside of a narrowly defined religious the or theological tradition. And something that I, I often bring with my students when I'm teaching Shakespeare's The Tempest, right? The Tempest is his last major work on the London stage. Um, the Tempest is all about the miraculous nature of forgiveness. That's at least how I read it, how I suggest it. Um, at the end of the play, the villains get off totally scot-free because the character forgives them. Mm -hmm. And the, the last words we have in Shakespeare's Tempest, the last words that, you know, if he's play, I love to think of him as playing Prospero. We don't know for a fact, but that would be amazing if Shakespeare as actor is playing Prospero, saying at the end to this London audience, the last speech where he's saying goodbye, now my charms are all o'erthrown, and that strength, what strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true, I must be confined by you or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got and pardoned the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. So he's just asking for applause, but on a bigger horizon. He goes, now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Really cheeky language there, right? Indulgence, right? That's that's the whole problem Martin Luther has with the church at the beginning of the Reformation for going out loud, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that dramatically, what's beautiful is this model of Prospero has just forgiven this brother who doesn't even ask for forgiveness. His brother Antonio is totally silent in the last act of the play, not even asking for it, this free mercy given. And so then Prospero asking for the mercy, the forgiveness of the audience and to, to dwell students like the fact that we leave aside religious concerns that we forgive one another that seems to be kind of miraculous right mercy mm -hmm. itself is miraculous so um again i think that that's a clear connection to a religious theme in shakespeare but something that i think poses value for even non-catholics non-christians who are reading or preferably viewing this play well you have um as Harold Bloom said um, famously, you have such uh, unforgettable characters and such magnificent expressions of the range of, of human emotion, human difficulty. Uh, and, and these are uh, extremely adaptable. To take Sean's last example of Prospero and the Tempest, and I'd love to think about that play as a play of forgiveness also. It's, it's a bit out of fashion, and now the play is read as, uh, and can be read quite uh, excitingly as a play about colonization or as about um, yes. the, what, what happens when 
one power or one culture wants to demonize and enslave another. And so you have Caribbean writers, Aimé Césaire and others, responding to The Tempest and actually rewriting it. And, you know, Sean mentioned Othello before, and that's another example of a play we thought used to be about maybe something like jealousy. But in 1987-88, it was played in South Africa with John Connie as the lead actor and Janet Sussman as the director. And it was a play about apartheid. It was about the humiliation and destruction of a black man by a white lie. Uh, Fast forward 30 years, when it comes to the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, Hugh Quashie, a distinguished black actor, said that actually the play is not about uh, apartheid, but it the play itself is toxic. The play itself can only be played if Iago himself is black. Otherwise, it inescapably restages the destructive toxicities of racism. So the point is the readings and rereadings that are generated do not remain absolute and unchanged, but begin to um, even generate their opposites in fascinating ways. Yeah. Well, we are coming to the end of our time very quickly. If you had to choose one, what's your favorite play from Shakespeare? Uh, Generally the one I'm working on, (laughs) which at this moment happens to be Hamlet. So that's an easy choice. Okay, Sean. Yeah, I, I've i got to go with my gut and point to a comedy that's written around the same time, Twelfth Night. Love that one. Twelfth Night is one of my absolute favorites for reasons I could get into in another conversation. <laughs> for Catholics, I want to recommend Measure for Measure, which has a stunning yes. portrait of how hard it is to be virtuous in the fallen world in Isabella, uh, who is a novice, uh, technically a postulant, but who wants to be a nun and uh, has to run into all kinds of impossible ethical situations. Those are some good recommendations. Well, we've been talking today with Sean Lewis, Associate Professor of English at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, and Robert Miola, Professor of English and a Lecturer in Classics at Loyola University, Maryland, about Shakespeare and the classics. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. This is Chris Gunty of the Catholic Review, and you've been listening to Catholic Review Radio. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. 
Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.